0: I'd like to start by reading a little passage from a novel called Infinities by an Irish writer called John Banville. And I, I, I just found this really interesting. His whole, whole novel is just amazing. The first present that he can remember is getting a clay pipe. It must have been his birthday. His sister took him to the tobacconist shop and bought it for him, with money their mother had given her. It came with a waxed cardboard pot of soapy stuff for blowing bubbles. In the garden by the henhouse, he tried it out. At first he could not get the hang of it, and then suddenly did. The bubbles hesitated on the rim of the pipe bowl, wobbling flabbily, then broke free and floated sedately away. They seemed to be rotating inside themselves as if the top was always too heavy and the iridescent surplus kept cascading down the sides. Sometimes two of them stuck together and formed a fat, trembling shape, something like an hourglass, only squatter. They were made of an unearthly substance, a transparent quicksilver, impossibly fine and volatile, rainbow-hued. They popped against his skin like wet cold kisses. They were another kind of elsewhere. Um, I I read that not just because I, I like the way he puts words together, but because it sort of is an indication of how a mind can be aware of things. Um, and the details that he would have had to remember from his childhood of, of, unless he was blowing bubbles as an adult, but that he would remember all that time and be able to articulate so clearly. Um, That's, to me, that's an example of mindfulness. And there was a time, probably 10 years ago, I was in Vancouver, staying with some friends and they had a sixth-floor apartment and I got up before everybody else did and went out on the balcony to meditate. And there was hardly a breeze and this huge bubble floated past in front of me. And it it just stayed in front of me for a while, for maybe three minutes, four minutes. And it was about two feet in diameter and probably about six feet long. I don't know what kid blew that, but it's amazing. It. And it was everything that is described here about the iridescence and the continual movement in it. And the, the shape sort of wobbled just floating there in the air. And fortunately, I wasn't close when it popped, but it would have been like, a, instead of a, a little wet kiss, it would have been like a St. Bernard's kiss. <laughs> anyway um, the idea is that, that mindfulness was one of the first meditation techniques that the Buddha taught and the reason for that is, does anybody know the reason? Well, cool. um, the reason for that is, yes? Well, I was say, unless you have some basic concentration it's hard to really enough concentration to understand more subtle things. That's part of it, yes. The uh, the necessity for careful observation of details. Yes, that's good. Um, The other reason is that the Buddha, when Mm -hmm. he woke up, when he became awakened, realized his true nature which is pure awareness. And pure awareness only exists right now, in fact we only live right now. If you think about it, I mean we have a past, we can remember. We can think about what we're going to do tomorrow. But it all happens from this now moment. And especially the senses. What we sense can only be in this moment. So whenever we're paying attention to the senses, to what we're experiencing, what we are seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling, it's bringing us into the present. I remember there was an interview with Thich Nhat Hanh, and the reporter was all excited because he had the opportunity to speak to Thich Nhat Hanh. And he, Thich Nhat Hanh had an orange and He divided it two and gave the reporter half and the reporter just took, grabbed it from him and, and started to the question Thich Nhat Hanh said, no, first we'll enjoy the orange and savor the flavor <coughs> then we'll talk and that, that brings us back into the moment instead of the reporter was racing way ahead of himself so when Buddha became enlightened it was because he had been a prince with all the luxury of the world at that point. Um, he, he'd seen people suffering and felt that there had to be a way to end suffering. And so he, he left his palace and, and went out and found the most, the best teachers in, at the time. And he studied with several of them and always found that they really didn't have it. They really didn't take the process far enough because they were all still involved in, in holding on to their, their ego image of themselves. Um, they were holding on to uh, their identity with the kinds of ascetic practices they would do, starving themselves, which, which Siddhartha did um, as well. But then on the verge of death, he decided maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Okay. And, and so he, he changed his whole attitude. But, but that, that being present in the moment doesn't have anything to do with how you can eliminate the things in your life that are compulsions. It's the wrong way around. By, by finding out who you truly are, because another, another word for enlightenment is self-realization, if you find out who you truly are, then all those other things, the, the grasping, and, and the, the pushing away, and, and that, that tension that's going on, and it's fear-driven in, in our minds all the time, disappear. Because we know what it is we really are. And we're, what we really are, I mean, Buddha said, everybody's enlightened. We just don't know it. But but why? Why don't we know it? It's because our whole orientation, and even, even 2,500 years ago, the orientation was to the world, to other people, to making money, to, to getting territories, and having wars, and doing all kinds of things, and feeding chickens. Um, but we, we have these responsibilities. At least we're, we're told we have all these responsibilities. And we have to do it. And in, in our society, um, doing is is the most important thing. Right. That's where all the values are. Right. You watch ads on TV, and, and you see what the people are doing. I mean, they must be doing well, because they have these really wonderful cars. Or, yeah. um, right? So. Mm-hmm. That's an outward-driven orientation, we're we're driven away from our true nature. And so mindfulness, what the Buddha was saying, and what Vanville was doing, was paying attention to the details. coming right back to this moment and what's actually happening in that bubble in front of him. Right, or what the taste of the orange is. Or what the feeling of the road is as you're driving down the street. And how, how the steering wheel's responding. What the other person is doing in the conversation you're having. How they're reacting. But a question. <clears throat> when, when you see something, do you do what most people do and simply say, bird, cicada? Or do you actually listen to the cicada? Or do you hear the bird song? Or do you actually look at the feathers of the bird? Or, or taste the orange that you're pushing down your throat? Most people live their lives in categories. So we make our experiences the categories, we limit how we experience the world and our lives. Because we want the security that what we've experienced up to now is right. And that's why there are wars. Because some people's ideas they feel are more right than other people's ideas. And and most of our conflicts are just because of that. But every moment is grounded, is founded in awareness. We can't experience anything at all unless there's awareness. And that's what Buddha realized when he became Buddha. He awoke to the reality that that's what he was. And his identity shifted to that, away from all of the the qualities and resources and relationships and responsibilities and, and all the efforts that he put into all kinds of things, almost killing himself. He realized that that wasn't going to change, that that is constant, that that's the foundation of all experience. It's the infinite potential of everything we could possibly be. So, when we are mindful, we're waking up a little bit. But even between thoughts, there's a teeny-tiny gap that's usually not even noticed because there's no information in it. But there's this little gap between our thoughts where there's just awareness by itself. Awareness without any activity. Um, I don't know how many people listen to music, but often there are pauses in the music. And I don't know about you, but my mind doesn't immediately fill that gap with thoughts. I enjoy the pause because it's part of the music. It's part of what's happening. And that pause is where awareness is by itself. It's It's a kind of state of restful alertness. Um, I I think I've used this example before that that if you're awakened at night by a strange sound that doesn't feel like it should be there and all of a sudden you're very alert and you're waiting for the next sound that will that will let you know that everything's okay or not. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and there's no thinking, there's, there's, there's no movement, there's no noise because that might interfere with what you could hear. So you're just in this state of alertness, total alertness. And that's being very present, that's very mindful. Right? So that's really important right? that we have those kinds of experiences. But we're normally caught up in all our activities. We're caught up in, in the responsibilities of what we do at work. We're, we're, we're thinking about what we're supposed to do tomorrow and, or what we didn't do yesterday. And oh my God. And, and there's, there's a motor of anxiety that drives most people. When deeper than that is just awareness. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a continuum from, from the grossest physical thing, where you, you, you lift 100 pounds, right down to the subtlest thought in meditation. Right? I mean, there's waking, sleeping, and dreaming. Those are the basic states of consciousness. And then, back in the 70s, there was a fellow at Harvard that discovered that there's a state of just pure awareness, awareness without an object. And it had a different physiology. So it was defined as a separate state of consciousness. And that's all part of one continuum. I don't know whether you've ever had something happen in a dream, and all of a sudden you're awake. But it's like it's still there, fully. Sometimes you can't even tell the difference between what you've been asleep or dreaming and what's happening now, you're awake, because it's, it's so real. And all you've done is, is move through a gap area, which normally people the alarm goes off and you go from dreaming to waking, right. but if you make that transition, then you start to be able to move up and down. Does anybody do lucid dreaming? Uh, Sometimes uh, you can, at the level of dreaming, participate in the dream, so you're not just having it happen to you. You can change things, you can move things around, you can solve problems. And that's simply learning to operate on a deeper level. There's a thing that happens in the nervous system, if you have an intense experience what happens is the the neurology, the neurons link up to support that experience if they don't then you just blank out or you don't recognize what's happening but if you have that experience over and over and over again then more and more neurons little brain cells connect to that pathway because that's where the energy is, and, and you know I, I don't know if the neurons really know what we're thinking. Maybe, but I don't think so. But they're interested in getting that stimulation of energy from the next neuron. And so if these guys have a whole bunch, I want to hook into that. And that means I'm participating in that pathway. And more and more and more neurons participate so that it becomes a program So, I don't know if you know people who are negative thinkers, always thinking about negative things and talking about negativity. But they've got an entrainment in their neurons that make them super sensitive to all the terrible stuff in the world. And they react to that. And those neurons just fire, and they do it all together. And so, my god, the world's a terrible place. If somebody does exactly the opposite and focuses on the really positive things in their lives in the world, and there are positive things, they'll entrain a whole different pattern of activity in the brain. Uh, One of my teachers said that everything is meditation. And with meditation, what you're doing is you're creating an entrainment in the brain that supports a certain style of experience. So the person who is thinking about how terrible the world is, right now, is meditating on that. And creating that as that neural reality. The more time we take, away from doing things like that and focus on this now moment tasting the orange right? smelling the, the flowers as we walk by right? feeling the way the muscles work as we move down the street the more we do that the more we're creating a different entrainment and that's, that's mindfulness meditation and even if you're sitting silently, not moving, there's still feeling, it. there's still sensation. Air is coming in and out of your lungs. right? There, there's clothes touching your skin, probably. Um, and If not, there's a chair or the floor. And, and even the air, there's a sense of that touching your skin. So that brings you into the now. It, it, it helps you be present and creates that pathway in your brain that supports this kind of experience. <coughs> okay. So, basically whatever meditation you practice, and even, even actually if you're, if you're really listening to what I'm saying, or hearing what I'm saying, that's mindfulness. You're in the now moment. Right, so, so during a Dharma talk is a meditation practice. So whatever you do, <clears throat> whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like doing, be fully present with it. and And grow in the realization of what that is underneath everything, pure awareness.